Hello everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going everybody? And we're lucky enough to be joined again today by Craig from the Legendarium podcast. Craig, thank you for coming back, man. You are most welcome, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And Craig's here to help us wrap up our discussion of the Dragon Reborn. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have an insult for Craig today. Uh, it, it's been a little bit of a messy morning, but, uh, you know, we, we're just happy to have you on. <laughs> Sorry, so. Craig, we've got no insult for you. <laughs> Somehow I'll survive. <laughs> so, yeah, Craig's here to help us wrap up, you know, book three of The Wheel of Time. Uh, and, you know, I do have one confession to make right before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. I went to the grocery store and I bought a great thematic beer uh, for, you know, oh. this specific episode. And what I did when I got back home was I forgot the entire reason I went and I left my beer in the car for <laughs> hours. And I just so remembered five minutes before going live. So I've got some great piss warm beer to discuss in this episode. Um, but what I'm going to do is I put the rest of them, I've got one here, I've got, I put the rest of them in the freezer, so in about 20-30 minutes, I'm going to be running upstairs just to grab them, so I have something cold to sip on while we <laughs> discuss my favorite Wheel of Time book. Sound good, boys? Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, if you, you do what you gotta do, man. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, uh, The Dragon Reborn, we finished up book three. Is there anything that you guys want to get out of the way first? Anything you've been rearing to talk about? Uh, okay, so here's one that probably won't fit in with the rest of the discussion for today, but um, <laughs> okay. one thing that, as uh, as I read through The Dragon Reborn, knowing what I do about the rest of the series now, I'm, uh, I'm both happy and sad. It's a bittersweet thing to get out the last gasps of that pure Tolkien reference that he does here in the early series. Yeah. Um, and so, as we know, book one is just straight Tolkien, in, in, a, in a way. Okay, yes, look, it's, in a very it's respectful not, uh, way, yeah, of yes. course. Um, so that's, I'm not bringing that up as a complaint, but <laughs> yeah. you know, as we go through the rest of the series, he's really going to leave that behind and go crazy with his own uh, fantasy story. Oh, yeah. But we still have little things, uh, as I was glancing through uh, the last half of this book uh, in prep for this, uh, this conversation we have things like there's a reference to the mines that they are working in the mountains of mist mm. uh yeah. you know it's clearly a moria reference uh, you know things like that <laughs> where you get these tiny little tidbits and he is going to leave those behind uh, even those so like book one is is very much structured and looks a lot like lord of the rings and by book three we're just getting these tiny little references and now we're going to leave them behind and it yeah. truly is Robert Jordan's original creation from here on out. Yeah. Uh, it's all him. Absolutely. Yeah, I honestly, I'm going to admit, I actually didn't catch those references. And now I feel kind of stupid. I feel like I should have gotten those references. No, no you're, you're talking to a <laughs> Tolkien guy. I'm, I'm yeah, kind of yeah. keyed yeah. into those things. It, I've tried <laughs> reading Tolkien. And believe it or not, I mean, this is coming from a guy who's hosting a science fiction fantasy podcast. Look, gasp. Guess what, everyone? I haven't read Tolkien. Oh, boy. And yeah, I've yeah. <laughs> tried to read Tolkien, and I just can't get, and I, I'm sure it's the same complaint that a lot of people have, and of course, this is a complaint that I just had from like when I was 13 years old. I haven't tried again since. I, it's really time that I, that I do that eventually, especially for this podcast. That would be great. But my whole thing was that goddamn first hour about Hobbits, those first 50, 100 pages about Hobbits, and I was just like, hmm, I just, I couldn't get past those but <laughs> then right. i had already discovered the wheel of time <laughs> no, so I, I was I, 
I refuse to let this go. I'm not okay. going to let this one yeah. go. Uh, because I was looking through my notes. Okay. I fully admit this is fault on my part. Like, I'm not saying that this is a Tolkien thing. Go ahead, though. The, uh, the, the, the lady folk, the Wonder Girls, go to, is it Tanchika? Where are they going to hunt the Black Yeah, Raja? Uh, uh, well, right I mean, now. In this one, they're going to Tyr. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I'm going to read you a paragraph uh, <laughs> after their arrival in Tanchika, okay? Okay, okay. Uh, oh, wait. Oh, shoot. I lost it. I lost it. Spoilers for book four, but who gives a crap? Yeah, Spoilers yeah. for book four. Uh, yeah. No, is it... Where are they in book three? This is Tier. in book three. This Tier. is in book three. They're in Tier. Tier. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, okay. Sure. Uh, the men wore baggy breeches, usually tied at the ankle. Only a handful wore coats, long, dark garments that fit arms and chest tightly. They became looser below the waist. There were more men in low shoes than in boots, but most went barefoot in the mud. A good many wore no coat or shirt at all and had their breeches held up by a broad sash, sometimes colored and often dirty. Some had wide conical straw hats on their heads and a few cloth gaps that sagged down one side of the face. The women's dresses had high necks right up to their chins and hems that stopped at the ankle. Many had short aprons in pale colors, sometimes two or three, each smaller than the one beneath it. And most wore the same straw hats as the men, but died to compliment the aprons. Good lord, nobody ever, ever say that you love Robert <laughs> Jordan and complain well, about listen. Tolkien's descriptions ever again. What ever. you were just discussing there, imagine that passage kept going for like 88 pages. And yes, then you would have the it's first... Called- Solid it's section called Crossroads of, of, of Twilight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Okay. I can't argue with that one. Oh, in fact, Crossroads man. of Twilight takes it to a whole new level in some way. No, so I, and my, my point is not to say that Robert Jordan did something wrong here. I love his descriptions. I, I just, um, <laughs> it's a common complaint with Tolkien. Right. And I'm like, if you, if you read other fantasy books and you have a problem with the Hobbit's descriptions, you know, or whatever... Yeah. It's like, well, it's time for a little self-awareness. This is oh, no, the entire I'm fantasy self-aware. genre. If, and I will also take that a step farther and say, if 13-year-old Rob had read, opened the Wheel of Time with that litany <laughs> right there, might not have ever gotten into the Wheel of Time. Right? Fair enough. But anyway, so, yeah, well, since we're already here, anything uh, about Jordan's style that we want to discuss before we get into his characters? <laughs> Drew, you okay with that? I'm just dying over here. I'm dying right now. I, I already got to see Craig get triggered on Twitter today because uh, a, a Twitter poll of greatest fantasy authors had, uh, what was it, 74% of people did not vote for Tolkien. and uh, Yeah, it was like it, it was like 24% Tolkien, 26% Jordan, and like 38% Sanderson. Yeah, and then the rest and, was Martin. And I'm like, yeah, and uh, yeah, like 3% Martin or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> So and I'm like, you, things. you freaking heathens. Like, look, I love Robert <laughs> Jordan. I love Robert Jordan, but come on. Oh, man. Anyway. I am, I am, I'm crying is right now. Right. I'm laughing so I hard. Would, I wouldn't even make a vote in such a thing unless I had read all of Tolkien, unless I had oh. read all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. Because good lord. Anyway. But, you know, this is the internet. This is this is not a new phenomenon. People want to vote for what they like, regardless of the other choices or yeah. the validity of those other choices. And, and or I, the validity of their own choice for that fucking know, matter. Sorry, go ahead. So, so in this kind of discussion here, I feel like I kind of bridge a little bit of the gap between Craig and Rob, where I, I have read quite a lot of Tolkien. I love his legendarium, you know... And, uh, so to speak. Yeah, so to speak. <laughs> not not to shout out anything or, or you know... Uh, <laughs> Definitely you not. Know, to, to tamp down those accusations. Um, 
but he, uh, it, I, I do think Tolkien, as far as his writing style versus Robert Jordan's, uh, especially in his, what I consider to be um, more uh, uh, weighty works, so outside of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, where it was more written in a historical style, you know, like like a you, for instance, in the Silmarillion, and and especially in like uh, you know, unfinished tales and the, and the histories of the Third Age and things like that, um, it's not written like Robert Jordan writes, you know. So it, I can see how somebody like Rob, who's used to this third person limited perspective, would be turned off by a writer like Tolkien. Espe especially you know? as just a new reader, that was the big deal. Is I, right. you know, the biggest thing I'd finished before this was Harry Potter. Yeah, not the same. No, <laughs> and it wasn't finished at that point. So it was just like books one through five, I think, at that point. Yeah, I discovered the Wheel of Time, and I discovered Tolkien, and I was like, "What is this last one? Oh my God, where is this going? Hurry up!" But I'm sure I'd have a much greater appreciation for it now, knowing what it is, and having a much better context for everything that Tolkien and everyone that Tolkien inspired. That's really his biggest achievement is his, how many writers he inspired, I think, and, and everyone going forward with that. Like, like everybody wants to be a Tolkien. Yeah. Well, you know. it, it, so I'll, I'll tie this back to Robert Jordan, actually. It's, uh, yeah. it's funny that it is inevitable. If you can manage to finish all 14 or, you know, okay, 15 if we want to get controversial, books in The Wheel of Time, if you can finish them, then it is inevitable that you will want to do a reread. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. Right? And so sometimes it's the next day. For some people, it's a month later. For some people, years later. They But you, you itch to get back to that. Uh, so my co-host, Ryan, uh, who mm -hmm. I started The Legendarium with, he and I were just talking last night. Uh, we're, we're starting another book series. We're doing Lightbringer. Mm -hmm. And uh, before we turned on Weeks. the microphones, he's like, I got to be honest. I kind of want to reread the Lord of the Rings, so it's the same thing. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> really? Yeah, it, it'll happen one day if you can finish it. You'll want to reread it. So wait, Sweet. coming from Ryan too. I know, I know. Anyway, I'm sorry, but wow. back to uh, the Dragon Reborn. I'm sure the yes. listeners are loving all this Tolkien discussion yeah. during our Dragon Reborn episode. <laughs> well, well, so it's funny we we started talking about Tolkien because uh, a big part of what I wanted to discuss in in this is actually like. Sir Thomas Mallory and Arthurian myth, because okay. this is the book okay. that I think a lot of the Arthurian inspirations and references are in oh, the forefront. Course. You know, we we still have a big, big focus on the Andorran royal family, which is just manifestly modeled after Arthurian figures. Morgana, Galahad, Gawain, you know, you, you have... It, it, the the sword in the stone. I mean, come on. Yeah, there. Yeah, the sword of the stone. Is what I'm for. <laughs> I I could I could go way off the rails with this, but I I just want to kind of touch the surface. Uh, you know, because we're a little uh, restricted for time today. Um, this this book I think touches the most on uh, uh like American cultural myth. And, and consciousness in fantasy. And even though it's not the first book in the series, I think in a lot of ways this is the most approachable book for a lot of readers because there are things they can pick up on, these references, that will draw them into the world and say, hey, the Stone of Tear, 
the sword that is not a sword. Oh, I get that. You know, you you, you get a, a a pretty solid hero's quest in this book, even though we don't see it a lot, as we talked about in the you know the episode last week, uh, where we don't see Rand's point of view much. Although we get a lot more of it in the second half, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I I love the way Robert Jordan uses. Uh, not only like Lord of the Rings references, as we discussed, but Arthurian myth as cultural touchstones to draw people into his story, to have them understand and and feel connection to something and feel like, oh, I recognize that, you know, and and it's it's yeah. uh, tying back to Craig's original point. This is more or less the last book in the series that is carried so much by those references from shadow rising onward this story gets insane you know like it it, it blows up it, it gets all over the map and and all that but in these first three books it's pretty tightly woven and it it is carried on the shoulders of robert jordan's predecessors what do you guys think You know, I really don't a, know how to follow that. It's a weighty <laughs> question to ask, but that, that really no, I mean, is. Since Especially you with, are, uh, sorry, since ahead, you're Craig. kind of, uh, you're you're building upon my point. I'm going to go ahead and say you're absolutely right, Drew. One hundred percent. Yeah, and I'll say I, you know, I'm not really too familiar with with the uh, with everything that's being referenced as far as you know Arthurian legend and everything, and the you know, I don't know. I just to me, this was all brand new stuff. Like I. To me, like, Especially I as thought a kid, right? Jordan was a genius. I thought, oh my god, this guy is just unparalleled. This guy is a god of writing. I, I, I really didn't have the context at the young age in which I, I discovered this to appreciate all these little things that, that he's hidden and all these little uh, inspirations that he's, you know, drawn upon. Yeah, uh, I, you know, and we could, we could again go on a Tolkien tangent and say the same thing <laughs> applies there. But yeah. let me ask you this question, Drew. Um, how? How much do you think that that applies now? You know, you think about the Arthurian legends and all this, the, the idea of, okay, it's the stone of Tyr and the sword is inside. And, you know, for some readers, yeah, you're going to latch right onto that. Um, do you feel like culturally we have enough of a, uh, a grasp on classic Arthurian legend to get yeah. most of that? Like when you read um, Galad, it's if you've read Mallory or if you've read, um, you know, well, whatever other version of the story you want, uh, then it's it's not too much of a leap to say, oh, Galahad or Gawain, right. you know. Um, but for people who haven't read that, for people whose entire ex- for people whose right entire here. experience this with <laughs> with uh, uh, King Arthur is that what the Disney one, the Sword and the Stone, yeah, like that may not be terribly obvious. Uh, so I, you know, I wonder. But that being said, um, I think your point probably still stands because just because we don't have those out, just because we don't have the details at our fingertips uh, culturally anymore, our culture is still baked in that pie, you know, uh, of um, yeah. those old legends, you know. And so they are still kind of to mix metaphors, and they're it's floating in the water. <laughs> We all we all kind of have we're stewing in these references even if we don't know it necessarily, 
But um, I think it was my second read through before I was like, oh, okay, it's still the, the sword and the stone. Sure. <laughs> oh, it. even I knew the sword and the stone. I, like, I, I don't <laughs> yeah. think there's anybody that probably failed to pick up on that one. But these other uh, characters that you guys are mentioning, you know, Galahad, Gwen, or whatever these names, yeah. like, I, I don't know any of these characters, right? So I think, and I'm thinking a lot of people are probably going to be in my boat. Probably, obviously not everyone. Um, those who are, you know, more educated than not than myself will probably be able to pick that pick up on those things but you know i just i'd never really bothered i was right into fantasy from a young age harry potter wheel of time brandon sanderson so i i think both of you guys are, are kind of touching on on interesting discussion points with this because uh as far as what craig's talking about here you know it's this um uh building off of previous fiction it uh sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, so to speak. And both Tolkien and Jordan did this, right? Tolkien, the, correct me if I'm wrong, Craig, but as I understand it, uh, Tolkien wrote his legendarium because he felt England, uh, you know, Britain was lacking a mythology, a satisfying mythology, right? Right. He, he, he thought that, what they had with the Arthurian legends was far too Christianized. Not yeah. to say that he didn't like Christianity. Obviously, the Roman Catholic Tolkien loved Christianity, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but he he felt that the culture was lacking something that wasn't Christianized. You know, after you read something like uh, the Prose Edda or the Elder Edda or something like yeah. that out of yeah. Iceland and the stuff out of Norway and Sweden and stuff, you uh, you miss out on some of that older stuff right yeah and and so robert jordan in not the same sort of um drawing from antiquity he still built the wheel of time on a sort of modern mythology and we see it with all these references to what we call first age now our age we see these references you know mosque and murk with the lances of fire oh, that yes. can reach around the world he builds his world upon modern you know, a, a modern foundation, and of course draws inspiration from things like Arthurian mythology and Tolkien's legendarium. And and then when he kind of reaches a, a critical mass of that foundation, I think he felt comfortable then just going nuts and building the rest of his world and the rest of his story, and those are the last 11 books in the series. Hmm. Awesome. Boys, I'm going to run and grab that beer. I'm going to let you guys keep going. I'll be back in about 30 seconds. Okay? <laughs> it's up to us, Drew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, no, that this is dangerous. Uh, don't let uh, Drew and Craig have, have control here, especially when we're on the topic of Tolkien. I mean, I, uh, I, the, the, the cover quote, you know, the famous cover quote, the Robert Jordan has come to dominate the world that Tolkien began to reveal, right? Right. And it's kind of controversial. A lot of sure. people take issue with that quote. Uh, a, a lot of people say, well, Robert Jordan did something very, very different from what Tolkien did. A lot of people on, you know, uh, maybe more Robert Jordan apologists will say, oh, no, he did his own thing. He's, he's far beyond Tolkien. He's, he's, you know, doing his own thing. But I, I think that's a very apt quote because while maybe the term world is not altogether appropriate in that context uh robert jordan still 
built his series on some of the same underlying principles as Tolkien did. Robert Jordan wanted to write the American fantasy series in the same way that Tolkien wanted to write a mythology, a fantasy, I mean, that wasn't really like a, a, a genre, a term back in the, you know, 1910s. Right. Um, but I, I think in, in spirit, it's an appropriate quote. Do you agree, Craig? So, yeah, I, I do. I absolutely agree with the quote uh, for a few reasons. I don't think it means that um, to, to say that Robert Jordan has begun to dominate or come to dominate the world that Tolkien revealed does not mean that, hey, this guy is even better than Tolkien. That's not what that means. You have to pay attention to what the actual words are if you want to understand it, right? Um, Context is important. It's, it's a weird thing about reading, right? <laughs> so... Tolkien, Tolkien did not invent imagination. And so you have lots of stories that came before Tolkien did, before The Hobbit was ever published. You have a lot of stories that were very imaginative and creative and fantastical and all this stuff. Uh, what Tolkien invented, for uh, lack of a better term, what he brought into the world was the concept of subcreation. And so it was this idea that you took your imagination and you gave it uh, you gave it life in a way that was previously uh, not seen in literature. And so you might have uh, Lewis Carroll going through the looking glass or whatever, sure. uh, but you didn't have him creating genealogies and economies and histories and languages for all this stuff within the world, right? So that's what Tolkien does is he fleshes out a world uh, in a way that nobody had tried to attempt before. Uh, and so what Robert Jordan is doing is within that vein. And there's, so there's no way for any fantasy writer today doing what we call fantasy, creating these secondary worlds, there's no way for them to get out of that concept of subcreation. And so in that way, anybody who does what we today call world building, they are playing in Tolkien's sandbox. End of story. Uh, but what you can do with that quote, what you can say is that Robert Jordan has come to dominate it. At, yeah, at the time that he was publishing, he's come to dominate it. And so in the way that Robert Jordan was playing in Tolkien's sandbox, uh, what Robert Jordan did was uh, he blew up the idea of the length and the word count and saying, you know, so Tolkien got his done in those, in that one volume, that Lord of the Rings. Um, and then Robert Jordan says, oh, you know, I see your three volumes and I raise you, 11. you know, far <laughs> beyond what you yes. could ever afford to, to do. Um, yeah. And so through that and just by virtue of his book sales and the conversation that he created, right. yeah, he did dominate that for a long time. And now it, kind of it doesn't matter who the author is they, we have this concept now in 2019 of the fantasy work being lengthy it's how often do you see standalone fantasy outside of like a neil gaiman maybe uh, it's it's rare it so fantasy is oh, it's yeah. world building in the way that tolkien did and then it's um it's where tolkien did depth uh, Jordan brought breadth and came so in, in a way he came to dominate it kind of in a 
uh, in a different angle than Tolkien took, and um, and so he does that. Does that make sense? He did both the depth and the breadth. Saying. Yes. And so now we have the popular authors like the Sandersons and the Rothfusses and, and whoever Erickson. else who kind of uh, Eric. Oh yeah, that's a great example. The Ericsons <laughs> who kind of uh, who are doing are what was patterned by Robert Jordan. And so I, I don't have a problem with that quote. It doesn't mean that he was better. It just means yep. that he took things in a slightly different direction. You know, I'm really glad uh, because I, you know, going into this podcast here, I felt a little guilty that I really didn't have much to discuss regarding Jordan's particular style. Um, so the fact that we've managed to fill about 20, 25 minutes with a whole <laughs> lot of exactly that with Jordan versus Tolkien, I'm actually really glad that you guys have been able to fill the majority of that time that <laughs> well, I've, I, and uh, I've left open here. So thank you. My Sorry, last, my last. Uh, thought on that was uh, we need to get away from this idea of Jordan versus Tolkien or Jordan versus Sanderson. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's no, Jordan, you, you got a good point. It's Jordan and Tolkien. Yeah. Yes. It's Tolkien and, and Sanderson. Sanderson. It's Erickson and, and Weeks and Martin. It's whatever. And it's Weeks. I don't. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> whatever. You know what I'm. I'm just. I'm just saying. It's all a giant conversation. It's not a competition. It's a, that, yeah. That's starting yeah. to wear on me just a little bit in the community. And that was. For those oh. who just heard me go, eh, Weeks, that's just a joke based on the fact that I've only read Night Angel. I have not read Lightbringer. So that's well, a very... So to Craig's Sorry, point, uh, Craig, in our, our first uh, Eye of the World episode, which just went live today, like yeah, uh, a couple what, hours ago, four today. hours ago, um, yeah. we actually discussed this kind of toxic atmosphere in the fantasy community where it becomes a competition rather than a conversation and that's a problem and that you know, like you get you post in a sanderson group and say hey i'm reading a song of ice and fire and you have 90 comments of people bashing on a song of ice and fire yeah and then you post in a wheel of time group and say hey i'm reading the stormlight archive and you have 90 people bashing on the stormlight archive and and bashing on what brandon sanderson did with the last three books of the wheel of time things like that and that shouldn't be how it is. You know, it, it really should be, uh, as you said, a conversation between styles, a conversation among all of these different authors and what they're doing in a very versatile genre and using very different styles of writing. And, you know, and this is this is still our, our writing style portion, which is scary to me because we're past a half an hour in the episode. Uh, <laughs> um, but it, it, it's it when you read m widely and you see the different styles and you see the different ideas that these authors are bringing in especially across generations when we're talking about authors like Tolkien and Ursula Le Guin and Stephen R. Donaldson and Terry Brooks and then Robert Jordan and George R. R. Martin and now you know, the, the modern big authors, Patrick Rothfuss, Brandon Sanderson, Brent Weeks, Joe Abercrombie, you know, it, it's, it's always worthwhile to compare and contrast what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they're doing it. Unless it's good kind, then you don't bother with that one. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go I just there. pissed off We're not going to go there. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, now is what we really, really need to move on. <laughs> yes, we need to move into our character discussions. We still have a whole bunch of interesting things, like concerning our main characters yeah. and our side characters. And, and thankfully, 
the the last half of this book moves very very quickly and so what character development there is moves fast and in that note i want to talk about perrin and fayil oh okay (laughs) you want to open with perrin and fayil i do do because they have uh i mean they they kind of dominate the character development in the last half of this book but at the same time they their relationship develops very quickly where we have Perrin immediately leery of her. He he's so nervous about this mysterious random girl watching him out of all of their group watching him. And he goes straight to Moiraine and says, "Hey, what what's going on here?" And Moiraine just tells him straight up, "You're a good-looking guy." Like, come on. Yeah, she, uh, Moiraine was being a little coy with Perrin in this one, wasn't she? I mean, Perrin just kind of walked right in on her without knocking. I mean, oh, yeah. She, all she managed to do is she just, you know, pulled her robe around herself. Very cool. And I, and I get, like, you know, okay, scrambling around the room, trying to clothe herself, scolding Perrin. That would have kind of ruined her whole image of, mm-hmm. like, absolute serenity. Of course she played it off cool. But she still could have been a little more upset with him. Mm-hmm. And all she did was just kind of smile at him and remind him and she's like hey you know some girls like a guy with a pair of shoulders yeah you know and then of course that makes someone like Perrin very uncomfortable I think I, I, I think he just kind of grunts and shuffles his feet a little bit yeah what an awkward dude man so I got a question for you Drew sure well for both of you really Rob as well uh, hit me up dude has Fayil at this so uh, I'm, I'm on page 613 in the Kindle edition I when feel like I want to give a real knee-jerk reaction to this question. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what does he say? Okay, so Perrin says, Fail, he whispered to her, my falcon. And this is kind of oh. where he, he gives it, right? Okay, yeah, let's do this thing. Let's, uh, yeah. let, let's be each other's lobsters. Um, he, <laughs> Solid reference, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, up to this point in the story, has Fail done anything and i mean anything to earn this so this this is mm. there are i think there are legitimate discussions to be had especially as the series goes on about the effect that fail has on Perrin and for for better and worse and the influence that she has on him for better and worse but at this point you know, people kind of say, oh, man, that Lan and Nynaeve thing sure came out of nowhere in book one. And I get it. But at the same time, I'm like, well, you know, it kind of happens off screen. And so I can believe that uh, it's a little bit, <laughs> you know, just because it happened off screen doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. But in this case, we have a ton of interaction between Fael and Perrin on screen. And I'm like, I get that love is mysterious and you never know when lightning is going to strike. But at the same time, it's like, would anybody go through what they did with Fael and say, oh, yeah, okay, totally, want to be in a, in a relationship with this person. All right, Drew. So Drew looks like he needs to say something. Let's go, man. So, I do think it's a stretch. I, I really, okay. really do. Uh, that said, there are, like, Robert Jordan did make an effort to establish some moments with Perrin, uh, like, building his attraction to Fayil. The fact that Fayil, back in Ilion, when they're on the ship, uh, the the chapter is called, uh, I think, A Hunter's Oath, and and Fayil says, I swear on my oath, 
I will follow your demands, Moiraine. I want to stay with you. And her body language, when she faces down Moiraine and faces down Lan, you see the scene from Perrin's point of view, and he has these moments of admiration. And previously on the ship, during their, their uh, you know, trail down from uh, Riemann to Ilian, we, we get kind of like a retrospective, in Perrin's point of view, of these moments where Fayil confronts Moiraine. And I think this whole kind of dynamic between Fayil and Moiraine is a big part of why Perrin <clears throat> develops a respect and an admiration for Fayil. He was already attracted to her. I mean, the, the, from the very first moment he sees her, he's immediately mm, I, thinking, I "Well, argue that. let me let me keep going." No, he's yeah, go immediately ahead. considering her looks. He says, "I can't quite describe uh, decide if she's beautiful or not." Yes. And and as it goes on, he he then decides, "Yes, she's beautiful." So he has that that kind of you know animal attraction that the you know, superficial, if you will, attraction. That, that I have for you, Drew. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yes. Uh, Who yeah. doesn't, But though? But it's... It, the, the personality kind of stuff, I think, almost supersedes, or I don't, I don't know what, what the opposite of supersedes, un- underseeds, like, I would have to dive way into, like... Yeah, we need a Greek and Latin for roots for, for this uh, well, etymology exercise. But anyway, like yeah. it, it almost like it, it burrows underneath Perrin's consciousness, where he sees the way Fayil interacts with, especially Moiraine, who Perrin views as a real authority figure, right? And he sees the way Fayil interacts with her, and he's impressed. And yeah. Perrin's attracted to that because Perrin, for all that he is, this like stoic rock stubborn you know kind of strong guy he's always uh self-conscious around warring and i think yeah. he sees fayil handle moiraine in a more or less competent fashion <clears throat> and he's impressed by it and he's attracted to it yeah no so i i was going to say a lot of exactly what drew just said I will say it was a stretch, especially my first few read-throughs. I did not understand why what parents saw in this girl who just did nothing but make fun of him and tease him and blame him for everything that was not his fault. But <clears throat> I can see those seeds started at the beginning. Going back, having context for the future of their relationship, I can see these moments like you just listed, Drew, when... When Perrin is watching her interact with Moiraine and Lan, and he, and he specifically notes that, yes, her voice is, you know, trembling a little bit, but to her credit, she is still not blinking, and she's staring the eyes to die in the face. She's staring her down. And again, we, we have these moments where Perrin isn't initially attracted to her, but every single time we return to his viewpoints, we have a little more to go on. We see him start to wonder first, is she attractive at all? Do, like, do I find her beautiful? Is her nose too big for her face or is it perfect? You know. And then as it goes on, is she the really beautiful woman that I've been warned about by Min? And of course, Min is talking about what she said was the most beautiful woman you've ever laid your eyes on. So he's, he's approaching Ooh. that threshold a little, little more every time we get to him. Sorry, go ahead. You look like you want to say the something, Drew. The most beautiful in the 
in the men viewing, the most beautiful woman you've ever laid your eyes on is talking about Lanfear. Yeah, right. But, like, he's starting to wonder if she is the most beautiful woman he's ever met, or if he, or if Fayil is that woman. So he's at least approaching that threshold where he's starting to consider her in the same breath, you know? So it's like, yeah, you, you yeah. can see the journey. It's yeah. just, there's not a lot to start it. I still don't think he had a lot to go on. And while we're talking about Perrin, I just wanted to say everything about Perrin's situation in this book makes me feel so bad for him. I mean, it's everybody against Perrin. Chapter 41, in, in particular, was brutal. I mean, we first we have Fael. She runs after their ship. She leaps aboard. She decides to pick a fight with the Aes Sedai, and somehow both of them decide, you know whose fault this is? This is Perrin Abara's fault. And then, of course, Moiraine decides to make Perrin responsible for Fael, which, of course, Fael decides that this, too, must also be Perrin's fault. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, my God, this poor guy. He just can't get a break. He just can't. How, like, what about you guys? Did you were you guys frustrated at all with how everybody was treating Perrin Abara in this in this book? Craig, uh, I I don't I this I'm the wrong person to ask this question to because really I'm of the opinion that Perrin deserves everything that he gets, good and bad. <laughs> well, I'm sure I've expressed a similar opinion in the past. But I still it's like I, I still have to recognize this poor guy being beaten down when I see it. Like, yeah, oh it's so parent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, okay. What was your question? Give me the original question again. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it I, was, I was explaining how how infuriated on Perrin's behalf I was that everybody is just blaming him for right, everything, right, regardless right. of whether or not he has anything to do with their particular issue. So, are you guys as frustrated as I am with how everybody is treating? Parent. No, okay, so I I know someone who will go unnamed, um, but this person is the nicest person I know, probably, okay. and, and I mean that. They are the nicest person I know, um, and because of that fact, this person invites a lot of horrible things into their lives. Okay, okay, yeah. It, so people take advantage of them, they don't understand it why a situation is the way it is and how to fix it because there is no guile in that person right and Perrin is much the same way where it's he is an incredibly kind and gentle person you know fierce warrior stuff notwithstanding uh his nature is to be uh honest gentle uh, and gentle and, and all these things and because of that he doesn't understand all of the intricacies, uh, the the politics and whatnot that are going on around him. And so I kind of get it with, you know, this, this other person in my life that I've mentioned and other examples like that that I'm sure we have all seen. It's easy to understand why somebody like Perrin would be uh, taken advantage of in that way. Never mind the whole Taviran thing. Oh, right. I can see why he'd be taken advantage of. Just does he deserve it? Like, oh, no, no, deserve, no, no, of course I, he doesn't deserve it. That's why I'm frustrated, I suppose. He just doesn't deserve it for being such a... What about you, Drew? No, he's... Perrin is, at least in the first three books, more or less a follower, or, or not necessarily a follower, but like a... He's like ballast being dragged oh. along. Uh, <laughs> he's a roadie. Yeah, yeah, like, he's, he doesn't have a whole lot of agency 
the the moments he has agency are mostly in uh, the middle of Eye of the World and the middle of the Great Hunt when Rand is not around him. But then in the Dragon Reborn, again, Rand is not around him, but he still doesn't have agency because Rand is this singularity that is pulling everything yep. to him in this book. I mean, and this, not just Perrin and Moiraine and Lan and Fael and Loyal, but Matt and Nynaeve and Egwene and Elaine and all <laughs> the dark friends we see in the story. Everything about the plot in this is being dragged toward Rand on his journey toward Tyr. And so yeah. in that sense, I, I cannot blame Perrin for anything because he is a spectator in so many aspects. Like he, he can't control anything that's happening to him in this book. Hmm. But on that note, well, I want to move to Rand. Okay, I just have one more thing to bitch about with Perrin. The one tiny little nitpick no, that's okay. just so small. Um, Jordan wrote him way too strong. Way too strong. Nobody is that strong. I don't care how much you work. To, to pull, pull Fayil up um, onto the back of the horse. and Well, it's, just, it's not so much that. For for me, it was when they got attacked by the Dark Friends. Oh, sorry, the, the Grey Men. And Perrin just rips that fucking chair apart like it's made out of matchsticks. It's like, dude, come on. I mean, half Thor Bjornsson could not have done that, but you're telling me that Perrin Ibarra just did it without even thinking? Dude, adrenaline is some... It, it, adrenaline is a hell of a drug, man. I know. They're like, I mean, they're like, mothers who've lifted cars off their babies. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Is, is it... It just, it seems a little too much to me. I don't know. Uh, uh... I didn't have. Are, a you, are you the person that hops into a video game forum and is like, "This yes, character is OP." Whatever you're about OP. to ask, yes, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Like, take there's a moment in in a memory of light. Not to spoil any part of a memory of light. Perrin lifts a horse and moves it. It's like, dude, that a horse is like twelve hundred pounds. Probably you're not going to move that damn thing. Like, what are you doing? I don't know. I just he he just seemed like Perrin can do some superhuman things. Right. Breaking that chair apart, he, it, what, he didn't even—it wasn't even an effort for him. It was just there, and it was broken. Like he didn't even have to give it a sh like an, an effort. Oh. I don't know. It just read a little unrealistic to me. But that's just me being a nitpicky bitch. I'm not going to lie. I, I can admit that. <laughs> so we can move on to Randall Thor now, if you guys would like. Is there anything in particular you wanted to start with uh, about, or I should say, concerning Randall Thor? There is. So, cool. so this is going to tie back to our first episode on Dragon Reborn and how little we get from Rand's point of view. And in the second half, again, we don't get much, but most of what we get is the climax. Because Rand's character arc in this book is an anchor that drags everybody else behind it. So it would, it would not work narratively unless we got Rand's point of view at the pivotal moments. You know, we, we get Rand breaking into the stone, into the heart. We get Rand facing off against Bilal, against Baal Zaman, and seeing uh, Taviran, perhaps, because this is a theme throughout this book, is, is the... Uh, the effect of Taviran on the world around Rand, this kind of wake that he leaves behind him. And 
Yeah. As he he approaches his moment of, uh, I don't want to say apotheosis because Rand's true apotheosis is like uh, nine books from now, but but his his moment of early character arc apotheosis when he says, "I am the Dragon Reborn," you know, uh, when he fully embraces his destiny and says, "Yes, I recognize I have to do this." I'm going to be this person, this mythical figure, you know. So we see the world warp around him throughout this book. And it comes down to this culminating moment. And when I first read the series, it kind of bothered me. But now, as I think about what Taviran means, especially narratively speaking, it makes so much sense. Because when he says, I am the Dragon Reborn, the Aiel drop to their knees. The Aiel chant, the Dragon Reborn, the Dragon Reborn. Yeah, that was a little odd. The Dragon Reborn has that. no place in the Aiel prophecies. Why wouldn't they be saying Kara Karn? Exactly. Kara Karn, right? And this is the Taviran pull on the pattern that to the world... They need the people present to recognize Rand as the Dragon Reborn. Yes. Totally agree. What, <laughs> Craig, you look a little mind blown by that. Yeah, right? uh, well, I'm wondering, I'm wondering how much credit we're giving here. Well, I mean, we, we discussed uh, the, the idea that this was the, originally the finale of the entire series. And then it went on. So I, I'm wondering, and, and look, I'm not saying that you are wrong, Drew, but I am wondering whether you're giving a little bit too much credit here uh, to uh, to the Taviran thing. And this is why the Taviran thing is both the best and worst thing about the Wheel of Time. Yeah, right? yeah. Yes, because no, you, absolutely you never agree. quite know. You can always just say Taviran and yep. say <laughs> that's why, right? Robert um, Jordan wrote himself cheat codes for his own plot. That's but, basically how it is. Yeah, so like it's one of those things in my mind that I just kind of say, oh, you know what? Yeah, the the Aiel think that this is their prophesied one, and it makes a lot more sense. You don't want to bring in the concept of the Karakarn in the last 50 pages of the last book in the series. Uh, and so they chant the Dragon Reborn, and then when the series goes on, uh, he kind of you know pulls that back a little bit and says, no, it's actually for them. It's about the Karakarn. And, um, and, and so that's where my mind goes more easily rather than uh, with the Tiviran thing. But I again, I could be off base there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look look this up, but I am like 99% sure uh, by the time this book was released, that he had the contract. The contract had already been expanded to six books. Oh, he's already and, making reference to things that haven't happened exactly, yet in the prophecies. Exactly. The way this book he's ends, gonna slay his people with the, where uh, Moiraine is saying, there was a body. This was not the Dark One. You know, like, this was... And then and then throughout the book, we have, like, the Varen documents of, like, Balsman, Heart of the Dark, name behind a name. Uh, I, I really do not think... Robert Jordan wrote this book intending it to be the finale. Right. Are we going to completely ignore the fact that we got prophecies that have things to do with events 10 books in the future, like in well, book one? 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's also a part of it. Um, uh, but Matt placing his eye on the scale, Rin's in the bloody hand. I mean, these are things that weren't going to happen until that don't happen until book twelve, book thirteen. Like, yeah, I never got even yeah. the slightest impression that this was ever going to be the end. And I know the story about how he originally was contracted for three, and then I think it turned into six before it actually went all the way to where it was today. But I mean, I got no hints in this book that this was supposed to be an ending. Besides, perhaps the uh, like the increasing um, okay the madness severity of Rand's madness. So I have a I have a quote here. Uh, so it's after Robert Jordan wrote the first book, he increased his estimate for the series to four or five books in the series. After he wrote the second, he thought it would be five or six, and then seven or more, and then this is in 1996. Now, he does not give an estimate to the length of the series, and is upset that the jacket of Lord of Chaos suggested the series would end with eight books. <laughs> Ooh, did it? Really? I, I mean, first edition Ooh. Lord of Chaos, I, I have never seen a first Wouldn't edition Lord of Chaos. Wouldn't that be rare to have a mint but, condition of one of those? Eh? Yeah, so af- at least after Eye of the World, he knew it would be more than three books. Yeah. Okay. Go, yeah. Cool, cool. All right, Drew, um, you win. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so this yeah. has been fact down with Drew. No, but uh, <laughs> that's the last time I ever do that. Oh, uh, <laughs> trust me, it only gets better. Craig, trust uh, me. Uh, you, we, we've only known each other for a couple of months, uh, but, but uh, I, I feel like we've we've gotten to know each other pretty well, and uh, <laughs> it, it's been a good time. But you, you do need to understand that. The Wheel of Time <laughs> dominated certain... my life from when I was, like, 11 to when I was 19. <laughs> so, I, I will say that I was still frustrated with the lack of Rand in this one, despite the fact that we discussed the reasons for it in the last episode. We touched on it again in this episode. He's just so damn interesting at this point, and I get it. I mean, every point of view we got mm. from him was a treat. I said it last episode. Oh, yeah. I said they were served up like hors d'oeuvres, and that's exactly, I think, the purpose um, that that we we didn't get a whole lot of Randolph Thor, but I will say as as far as like to wrap up my whole thoughts about Rand's journey in this book, I will say I never and I will never forget my first time reading the scene where Rand walks into the chamber at the heart of the stone. Like I remember exactly where I was. I was 13 years old. I was sitting in the hallway outside my mom's French office at the public school that she taught at. I used to go there uh, after hours and. I was like one of the only people left in the building. I was sitting there cross-legged on the marble floors, the occasional teacher walking by, and I'm just open with the Dragon Reborn in my hands, and Randall Thor is approaching Kalandor, and he's confronting the Forsaken Bilal, and the whole duel that follows. It was such a formative moment in my young life, and at the time, I, I, I had no idea how much it was going to shape me as a person going forward. So I just wanted to say, like, this book just... I have so much nostalgia diving back into this book, particularly the very, very end of this series. I mean, I've read it 150 times, or I should say the end of this this particular book, and it was still, I, I was still just as much in awe of it this time around as I was the first time I was reading it. So, like, Randall Thor's journey in this book, chills. I thought it was phenomenal. So I see uh, Craig nodding his head there about the end, the, the climax of this book here. Uh, yeah. I want to hear yeah. your thoughts. So, Robert Jordan has a real gift for endings, um, and, and we see this throughout the entire series. 
even with the so-called slog, um, even with those books, he always has an ending that is mind-blowing and, you know, it's a, it's the face-melting guitar solo of fantasy book endings, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it seems like it's that way every time. But with this book in particular, this is the last time that we're going to do the classic uh, everybody's together, they split apart, and then we bring them back for the end of the book. And he's had two books to practice that type of ending. And this is the final time that he's going to do that. And I guess my point is just take the idea of the face-melting guitar solo of an ending uh, and marry that with this idea of bringing everybody back together. And you have one of the most epic endings in all of fantasy literature uh, with the seizure of Kalandor Cal and uh, bringing the Wonder Girls oh, yeah. back in, the Aiel yeah. and Matt's fireworks, and you know, the whole thing coming together. Uh, the last, what, 100, 150 pages of this book. <laughs> Drew's kissing his are, fingers. Yeah, it's Chef's Kiss. So it is amazing. Yeah. I, Flawless. I, I, Flawless. I, I don't know if I can really disagree with what Rob said there. Like, it really is a flawless climax. You know, they're. There are so many threads coming together, and and they just weave so perfectly, and not not as a, a pun, not as a reference to the you know magic in the wheel of time, but like it really is you know, like a plot thread issue where Robert Jordan brought like four separate plot lines into such a phenomenal climax. And something that had been built up to over the course of three books. And this is why, you know, I, I talked about in the last episode, I think as far as his original plan of a trilogy, this was the end of his, quote, first book. Because this is the climax. This is the conclusion that draws all the plot lines back together. And there, there are so many markers, thematic, narrative, character markers, across these first three books that come to a head at the end of this one. And the next, in Shadow Rising, becomes a, a very different story. And so, Rand remains the linchpin across these first three books. He is the through line. He is the Dragon Reborn. He's the character whose, uh, you know, character arc, everything else is built around. But it's awesome in this one, especially, because the other character arcs have so much more room to grow. We get the Wonder Girls. We get Matt. We get Perrin. Especially Egwene in this one. Uh, she... Egwene has an opportunity to show off what I think is her greatest strength as a character, where she's she's a voracious learner, right? That's what and, I marked down for this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and she is really, really willing to use the new information to solve her problems, and that's an admirable character trait. I think you know there are a lot of characters in the Wheel of Time and in other series, who are resistant to new information. And I'm, I'm just going to... Maybe this is controversial. 
maybe some people in the uh, United States today could draw a lesson from Egwene <laughs> and e embrace some some new knowledge and and learn. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, or old or old knowledge for that matter. Or old knowledge for that matter. I'll say this as a Canadian looking over the fence and go, <laughs> yep, and then just kind of dip back down. You know. It, these are the things that I admire about Egwene, right? You know, that she, you know, we've talked about it. I have my problems with her. I, I don't think I would be friends with her if I knew her in real life. But there are absolutely things about her that are admirable. That people should read, recognize, see, and maybe reflect on. a little bit. Yeah. And the second half of Dragon Reborn is one of the best examples of this because what she does especially after they've been captured by the black aja she's so resourceful she's barely even learned you know to use the ring and to to manipulate teleron riyadh and she does like crazy things with that to help uh, facilitate their escape and yes ultimately they need matt to be the 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 final turning of the key to get them out but Matt never would have been able to do that had she not incapacitated. Right. You like know. My problem with this point is that she would never have been able to incapacitate Emiko if the Block Aja wasn't so incompetent as to not even search <laughs> their victims for a Tur Angriel before imprisoning them. Well, I mean, they left the, the ring on her. I mean, that's so incompetent. Of course, Egwene's going to break out. Uh, I wouldn't say that's so much in Egwene's favor as it is in, in uh, Black Aja's, you know, loss and their stupidity. I have two points to that. One is, okay. I said I arrogance. Oh, of course. <laughs> the Black Aja oh, are I said I. Of course. The second is that, yes, Egwene got lucky, but she made use and made unorthodox use of the resources she had available to her. Yeah, I mean, okay, you, I, I can see it. I, I, I'm not as much like, I'm not a huge Egwene fan until like book eleven and twelve and thirteen. Hey, thirteen not so much, but book twelve specifically. Uh, you like it when she does stuff. I like it when she controls things yeah. and she puts people in their place. I like, and she turns their own words against them. <laughs> I love that Egwene, the Amarlin seat at the height of her power. After the Shan Chen attack, that's no before the Shan Chen attack. Everything leading up to the Shan Chen attack, her whole undermining sure. the White Tower, excellent, best Egwene. Everything else, yeah. But good anyway, and bad. the the end of Drew, there's, love her. there's a quote the, that I want that I yeah. think wraps up exactly who Egwene is uh, and kind of what you're talking about. There's it's this single line. It jumped out to me on my reread a year or two ago, mm -hmm. uh, and I highlighted it and I've loved it ever since. And it's very simple. She's, it's in chapter 37. She's on a ship, and a, the sailors are walking by bowing to them. And the mm -hmm. line is, she did not like feeling ignorant. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> she vow, she oh. vowed to learn at least some of what it was they were doing. She did not like feeling ignorant. And that is not everything you need to know about Egwene, but that is the lion's share of what her personality yeah. is. Yeah. Agreed. Totally agreed. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, oh yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if there's. Guys... Sorry, go ahead. 
I was gonna say, I don't know if there's a better, like, period to put on the discussion of Eggween than that. Like... <laughs> no, I, yeah, I mean, every... Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, coming across that line, I don't know, if, unless I was paying really close attention, I would have probably appreciated that if I was paying really close attention. You're right. <laughs> she doesn't like feeling ignorant. Yeah. And, so, and that's... Those uh, five words. Can I it, switch uh, gears to another character? Um, yes, my fan. And this will bring us to something that uh, that that I that kind of drives me a little bit crazy about Robert Jordan's style, but in a fun Ooh. way. Um, Avienda, Avienda shows up uh, okay. sometime. What was that chapter thirty-eight, thirty-nine, <laughs> somewhere in there? Drew's favorite. Yeah, everybody loves Avienda, and right that's now, great. So anyone who can't see. So when Avienda shows up, she's kind of stony-faced, and uh, and so whoever I can't remember whose point of view we're seeing it through. It might be Egwene. It might be Egwene, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. So we've got Egwene yeah. saying, like, oh, man, this girl, she's hard as, oh, hard as stone and all this stuff. Um, and then <laughs> as soon as she's named, oh, it's Avienda. And at some point, her like, she gets cracks a little smile on her face. Um, and it's the moment she's named that Egwene, in her point of view, in her internal monologue, she goes, oh, she's actually quite lovely. And there's this thing that drives me crazy. Like I said, kind of more in a fun way than it actually makes me upset way. Okay. But as we go through the Wheel of Time, every character who gets a name, or I should say, you know, almost without exception, every character who gets a name is more attractive than the last one that you met. Um, so, <laughs> really? So, and they're all, I mean, uh, these are Craig, all Craig, you might most... have just ruined that for me. That's going to bother me going forward every, now if I Every character is more it. beautiful than the last, and every woman has bigger breasts than the last. And, you know, it's <laughs> oh, as you yeah. go through the story, so it's, like I said, it's more just I like, it kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. It doesn't actually make me upset. But uh, Avienda shows up, and as soon as she 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 cracks a little smile you know it's kind of like uh it's it's uh what women complain about a lot of times where it's like oh you know you'd be so pretty if you just smiled more <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, uh anyway so avienda shows up i so now we can actually talk about avienda's character but that's just one of those little things that uh that cracks me up every time so i'll i'll, I'll <laughs> kick it off by doing a little defense of robert jordan saying that Maybe that's a little bit of exaggeration. I know but, it is, Drew. I but, <laughs> it's just more fun to say it that way. Uh, but as far as Avienda goes, uh, even though she's only on the page for, like, what, like nine pages in this whole book? <laughs> right. We get great she, character development with her. She's in one of my favorite scenes in the entire book. Oh, yeah, the the attack, the murder. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll get yeah, there but, on our, during our favorite scenes. Yeah. But... Uh, we learned so much about Avieta just in these like two pages with Bane and Chiad talking to and past and over the heads of Egwene and Elaine and Nynaeve. You know, we, we find out that Avieta was supposed to be a wise one and was not supposed to be going yeah. over the dragon wall. You know, and and we get these little hints of her affinity with the channelers and and that's in itself a hint well, that avienda is a channeler and that was from Egwene's point yeah, of, yeah exactly it was Egwene that noticed that like yes. for some reason she felt a strange kinship with this woman yes yeah and so uh like we get a lot about avienda and what she is as a as a character even though she barely talks even though we never get in her head we only see her for like 30 seconds you know and 
it's just another example of Robert Jordan's ability to build a character from the ground up in like no time at all. And, and, and on top of that, her sort of stoicism is not necessarily unique to her as a character, but uh, is emblematic of the Aiel culture regarding Dalen and how Nynaeve heals mm. her, and then she dies, like, right away, and Nynaeve gets so yeah. angry, and Avienda's just like, death comes to us all? Eh. Like... Yeah. Like, yeah, it, it sucks, but <laughs> that's life, you know, and... <laughs> it, 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 we have so little time with Avienda in this book, but it's so well done, you know? Mm. I just wish that listeners could have seen Rob dab just then. Oh, you weren't supposed to say anything. Damn it. That was just for you guys. <laughs> yeah, no. Anyway, but so I, yeah, I, maybe maybe there's not a ton to say about Avienda yet. I, I think as you guys go on with the series, there's going to be a lot more to say about her. But uh, Oh, for anyway, sure. Anyway, she's here. She's one of everybody's favorites. <laughs> Better bring her up. Yeah. So uh, I, I know uh, Craig has kind of like a hard uh, deadline here. So I want to get yes, into probably the most important character to discuss in this book, and that is Matt. Yes. Yes. Okay. Is there anything you want to discuss right out the gate? I, I Mostly I want to kind of uh, build off of what we talked about in our earlier, you know, Eye of the World and Great Hunt episodes, and that is how Matt has his, like, core developed early in the series, the kind of person he is, but his outward-facing, you know, his uh, interaction with the world is tainted, literally, by the dagger. <laughs> and now we get yeah. to see him not tainted. And we see the kind of person that he is. We see him as the unreliable narrator, the hidden hero, the heart of gold who doesn't want to admit that he's a heart of gold because he comes from this aggressively patriarchal society. You know, he's, he's raised in the same... Uh, you say patriarchal yeah, society? Yeah, I, I beg your pardon. Okay, let me let me uh, build this out. He comes from the same culture as not a whole, not a whole. I'm I'm going somewhere. He's he's raised okay. in the same society that raised Randall Thor, the guy who mm-hmm. cannot hurt a woman. Yeah, well, except in it's, this book. Is that is that patriarchal, or so, is that just so because in, he's been indoctrinated in to think that? In our American culture, this is an aspect of what is generally regarded as like a patriarchal mindset, right? Mm-hmm. It's this our like society. chivalry, uh, but not necessarily like classical, real Arthurian chivalry. Like our current modern idea of chivalry. Even though the women's circle like really controls everything in the two rivers, the men there are raised in such a fashion that they have these ideas about women. And they have these proclivities toward gender dynamics. These combative sort of ideas. And Matt reacts to cultures, new cultures around him and uh, uh what's the word i'm looking for it not not reacts but like he he's he's closer to Egwene in her adaptability right uh 
he learns and is willing to depart from the things he learned growing up more so than Perrin or Rand. Matt is much more excited to be a man of the world than to bring his two rivers uh, like sociological ideals with him. He just wants to have new experiences. But well, at the core of him, yeah. at the core of him remains this decent helping everybody. I am responsible for those who cannot help themselves sort of personality. I would say it's more of a I'm responsible for women who can't help themselves personality. He doesn't give us two shits about men. Uh, I would I'm not, disagree. I, with I that. don't agree with that at all. Yeah. No. 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 Especially right, we'll, as we... we'll get into those later in the series. But exactly. but yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm discussing specifically like what we like for example in uh, Erangel. Is it? He yeah, with the, with the, the mother. Yeah. Money to the women, uh, woman with kids, but he doesn't give money to anybody else. He saves Eludra. He doesn't come to anybody else's rescue. It seems at this point he's you know I'm trying to 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 find the the correlation, Drew, where you say that Matt being raised in a society that refuses to hurt women suddenly makes it a patriarchal society that he's been raised in. I just I don't understand the correlation uh, there. I think I get what you're getting at, Drew. Yeah, it, it, I'm not it, saying it's not so like patriarchal in the like the ironclad definition of it where like men rule um okay but the the sociological consciousness of like women need right. to be protected and we see that yeah. a lot in the dragon reborn and we see a lot of women kind of rebelling against that naive Egwene, elaine yeah. it's like oh you think you need to protect me well let me show you a thing or two right sure yeah uh but but as as matt's character develops because this is like it's crazy to think about we're what you know, almost 3,000 pages into the series, and we've just gotten our first Matt points of view. You know, but, so, this is the beginning of what we really get to know about Matt. And this is the foundation of his character. And we get to see him being selfless, even though he's, he, like, he lies to himself. Like, when he gives the, the money to the woman, the mother, in Erringill, he's like, oh, I was just like it, it was an urge the kids it was, were it was a random urge crying. and and yeah. i i didn't want to see them crying anymore so i'm just gonna give him money and then he walks away and he's like fool and then and then he can't decide whether he's talking about tom or him you know and then and and, and he does the same thing with aludra where he he just immediately acts to protect somebody like i mean i mean tell me rob honestly do you think had that been a guy in in the stable that like four dudes came in with knives threatening to kill him matt wouldn't have jumped down to help him i i i think matt would have but he would have i i don't know it would have been more like or less likely perhaps Hmm. that he would have jumped in to save a man but then again you know he might have thought the man could take care of himself. Who knows? I do want to make sure Craig gets uh, anything he wants to say out of the way about Matt, because I know you've only got a, a few minutes left. Craig. Uh, you know, I, I'm actually going to leave it where Drew did. I like what you said about his character, and I feel like because we're so new to his point of view, were we discussing a later book, I would probably have more to say about him beyond that. Sure. Uh, but at this point, I think that pretty well wraps up what I would want to say about Matt. Cool. Except that the awesome. fireworks scene was dope. 
No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it, pretty much. Okay, so about <laughs> Matt specifically, I just wanted to say that for me, what Matt represents in this book is the much-needed humor in a book that's this dark. I mean, if you think about the rest of the characters and their journeys in this book, there's not a lot to brighten the mood. Rand's out there chopping off heads and stuff. Right, Rand's out there chopping off heads, being hunted by dark hounds, sweating and giggling, you know, being chased by dark fr- everything, you know. We have Perrin, who's struggling internally with the wolves and externally with Fael, as well as his growing defiance of Moiraine and his first steps through the wolf dream. Uh, we have Egwene and Nynaeve bickering like school children for a thousand miles. I mean, really, the only people cracking any jokes at all in this book are Matt and Tom Marilyn. And pretty much everything I have to say about yeah. Matt is just with his interactions with Tom Marilyn. I love the chemistry between those two. This? Tom yeah, Marilyn, yeah. boys? What do you think yeah. about him? I, yeah, I like Tom Marilyn fine. I don't get the Tom Marilyn thing, but I like him fine. What do you uh, the, the thing? Uh, what's, what's the thing? Yeah, how, how beloved he is among the fandom. Um, He's really, like, that beloved among the fandom? Oh, I haven't yeah. noticed a whole lot yeah, of that. But... It, go, go to Jordan Khan. Uh, check out the okay, check out the I'll... cloaks. Um, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, no, I mean that's just a little example, but yeah, people yeah. people love them some Tom Maryland, and I think he's fine. But I don't. Yeah. It... True. Yeah, I I think Tom was a, like a really great um, character for Matt to kind of bounce off of in the last half yes. of this book. He was because yeah, we're yeah. Uh, but I I don't like necessarily gravitate to him as a character. I I like him, but he's not like. a favorite or you know he, he doesn't like demand the story that the way other characters do so yeah yeah a lot of my point about matt here is just with his interactions with tom and i i just i loved them they're, they're great all the way through and as like uh as you said drew like they are just kind of they they're chem they're the way they interact off one off of one another is so great. They're, I think they're the perfect traveling companions for one another. And I could tell it was going to be a great journey before Matt even got Tom out of the inn in Tarvalin. You know, he he Tom watches Matt demolish three whole roasted chickens, and then his reaction is superb. He just starts these like, "What did you do, boy? Stuff him up your sleeve?" Which kind of gave me a little giggle as a as, as a teenager. Oh yeah, it's a great really, line. Really got me. <laughs> What really, really got me was the line that he immediately follows when he's about to go grab all of his belongings. He says, no, you wait here and try not to eat the table while I go and get my things. I'm paraphrasing there, of course. But, oh, I just, yeah. even even to this day, I'm still giggling over that last line. You wait here and try not to eat the table while I go and do this. I just, ah, I get such a little savage chuckle every time I read that line. Tom Marilyn, funny dude. Yeah, very funny. funny. Very funny. So, Craig, uh, before you head out... Um, I, I know you're kind of on a hard yep. deadline here. Do you have any like, you know, kind of last thoughts you want to yeah. bring in here? Yeah. So I, I want to bring our discussion crashing back down to earth after all this uh, <laughs> this great kind of heady talk about characterizations and motivations and all okay. this stuff. Okay. Uh, and I just want to bring up something that happens a couple times in I think it's in this book. If not, uh, you know, once in book two and once in book three, there's talk of us a turnspit dog. Okay, catch oh, yeah. this dog. Okay, so yeah. they're walking through a town, and uh, and Perrin just kind of glances out of the corner of his eye, and he's like, "Oh, there's a dog in a wicker wheel turning a spit," and I was like, "What? Is that a real thing?" Looked it up. It is a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The turn spit dog. I'm reading off Wikipedia here. 
was a short-legged, long-bodied dog bred to run on a wheel called a turn oh spit God. or dog to wheel to turn meat. The type is now extinct um, and probably went extinct about 200 years ago or so. The Vernipator Kerr was bred to run on a wheel in order to turn meat so it could cook evenly. This is a real <laughs> thing, ladies and gentlemen. The turn yes, spit dog this... is real. <laughs> This moment you are having right now, Craig, or at least when you look this up, is the moment that I was having when I was, like, 17 years old. Yep. And I was doing, like, my third or fourth reread, and I was like, spit dog. It, of course, having no context for what a spit was, I was thinking literally saliva. And I was like, <laughs> they have this dog just drooling into a bowl somewhere? Like, somebody's doing something with that? It was in the kitchen scene between... Um, Nynaeve and the Amberlin <laughs> in uh, in the first half of this book. Dude, I see Drew. You, I see you laughing oh over there. I was 13, gosh. dude. I was 13. I was about 4 foot 10 back then. I'm sorry. So, like, I never had that that issue. I, I Drew, always you gotta thought of like a Pay attention while you read. Come on. This, this no, is no, I also had stuck. a beagle at the time who if would, you would want, have drools if you of, truly like, want of spit to, that were like a foot and a half long. If you truly want to understand... Uh, this series. If you want to understand the Wheel of Time, then you better brush up on your turn spit dogs, my friend. <laughs> All right. Oh, I, I, I immediately thought of like a turkey on a spit, and I was like, oh, there's I some know, dog. I see. Like, I didn't know the ultimate word for the spit. Momentum for that. I didn't know there was another word for spit. There was another spit. I just spit spit oh. saliva spit. That's anyway, spit now that right. Craig threw our whole episode into uh, uh, disarray, I just I, I've been sitting on that for over an hour now, and I'm so excited to share it. <laughs> So, okay, you guys, I'm going to go. You you wrap it up All for right. us. Uh, thanks again for having me on. And uh, No, thank you, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and, Everybody check and, out Craig at the Legendarium. Sorry, go ahead, Drew. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Oh, no, and we're looking forward to having Craig back on, uh, hopefully, for the Fires of Heaven. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll see fires of Heaven? That's pretty soon. Sweet. Um, well, not that soon. It'll be a month from now, at least, probably. But you Yeah. Know. Oh, yeah. So we'll, we'll leapfrog my absolute favorite book in the series, and I'll come back on for another one. So, um, okay. yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> cheers, guys. Thank I'll you, talk Craig, to you for later. everything. Have a good one, dude. Absolutely. Sweet. All so, right. Rob, so now, yes, my dude. Now let's get down to business because we got a. <laughs> I mean, we are well, we, gotta, we are over an hour in. We are yes. almost an hour and a half in, and we got to get moving here. So, okay. Why do you have a re uh, time limit as well? Uh, ideally, yes, I do. Um, yes. Okay. But I want to talk about Tear, the climax, the city. Yes. Everything that goes on here. Sweet. Moving on beyond, you know, like character-specific things, just like plot stuff, right? Okay. Because the way this book is constructed is. Uh, it's like a stool, so to speak. You have you have four legs holding up, you know the 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 capstone of the story, and Tear is that capstone. And we get Tear from a bunch of different points of view, right? We get Tear from the the Wonder Girls, where they're uh, you know with Mother Gwenna, and and they're in the Meul, and then we get Tear from yeah. Matt. And he's in, like, you know, the kind of maybe seedy in district. And then we get Tear from Perrin in the higher class in district. And then we get Tear in the stone. 
And this is one of the most comprehensive, uh, especially in the last, like, what, 150 pages, 120 pages, such a tight space, we get such a comprehensive view of all aspects of a city, of the culture. We don't really get this often. We see many cities, we see basically every single major city across the series, but we never get to see them from such a diverse array of points of view. And I love that. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, I will admit that I hadn't really picked up on how many different uh, points of view we got to view Tyr from. I hadn't realized like it was actually from... We got some from the Mala, and we got some from the Stone, and we got some from the higher end, you know, the, the higher class district with Perrin and Moiré. And I hadn't really actually noticed that we got such a wide, diverse view of that city. However, I will admit that looking back retrospectively, I'm pretty sure some part of me noticed that in some small unconscious way because, and this is a, this is kind of embarrassing to admit, um, I was had a, a shower thought the other day where I was thinking, if I could rule any one city in the Wheel of Time, what city would it be? And I thought, would anybody not choose Tyr? Some would choose Camelin, I'm, I'm sure. Camelin's a great place to be. But I would choose Tyr. I mean, the, the, the stone? Are you kidding me? Do you have any other structure like that anywhere else in the entirety of the world? Probably not. So much wealth. But then again, looking back, I, I hadn't realized just how kind of corrupt that entire system is like everything that happens with the high lords and how no peasant can can call upon a high lord you know to to trial for anything like they can just go and rape a fisherman's daughter and have her killed if they want to well, and nobody can touch them yeah that I, I i didn't really appreciate how fucking terrible and corrupt that was until i was like in my 20s and i was like holy crap like this this whole city is like i don't know it's rich it's it's fantastical it's spectacular but it wasn't until I, I, I got a little older that I realized that their whole system had to be, just had to be overturned by Rand. And I'm glad that he did. Yes. I'm really glad that he did. Yeah, and, and we get more of that, you know, kind of early in um, in the Shadow Rising. But it, the culture is, is so rich. But it's crazy to, to sort of, um, uh, like understand how much the culture of Tyr has built up around the stone as this focal point, right? Where even, yeah. you know, like we see uh, Captain Malia, uh, you know, yes. and, and he's just like a ship captain who barely even lives in Tyr. And his whole lifestyle is built around the, the mentality that, yeah. that emanates from the stone. This, like, that is the cultural touchstone. And behind that touchstone is a fear of the one power. And so to Captain Malia, he's he hates Chandlers. He hates Aes Sedai. And he has such a hard time, even though he's a greedy man and a and a an ambitious man and wants to learn about all these intrigues that he's convinced Matt is part of. He he can't like overcome his hatred of the Aes Sedai because it's such an ingrained Terran ideal that comes out of what the stone represents. Yeah. Like it, it and and it's so appropriate 
that the stone, as a, a cultural monolithic symbol of fear of the one power, is the ultimate goal of Rand and his plotline in this book, which is all about fear of the one power. And yeah. it's his catharsis, his acceptance of being the Dragon Reborn and being a channeler and embracing the fact that, yes, I can do this, I have to do this, I have this ability, and I need to learn to, to handle it. So he's going to confront the most impregnable fortress in the world that also represents his deepest fear. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm really glad that you brought up Captain Malia. I totally forgot about him. And there's one thing oh. I just wanted to, to give that man a shout-out for, or at least give Robert Jordan a shout-out for, and I wanted to compliment Mr. Jordan on the amount of world-building he managed to accomplish with Matt's conversations with Captain Malia. Like, what mm. Malia thinks about this kingdom, what Malia thinks about that kingdom, how... Tyr received the worst... Oh, sorry, not Tyr. The, the Ilioners received the worst of his hatred. And it was like... There was a line in there, something about how Captain Malia's beard quivered with indi with indignation over how filthy the Ilioner ground was. And that was just like... What a what an excellent, excellent kind of line to, to throw in there. To give us a little more context about the, uh, the relationship between Ilion and Tyr and how they're constantly at each other's throats. Um, I just wanted to say that was awesome. I, I still get a laugh every time I read, you know, a lot of ca of, of Captain Malia uh, in this book with Matt as well. It was it was awesome. Yeah. All right. So now that uh, now that our excellent special guest has left us for now, let's dive into some lore. Drew, you have a few things that you want to make clear from what I understand. Let's hear them, dude. I I do. Uh, so. There's there's one really big thing that is uh, kind of discussed fairly often in the fandom about the second half of this book, and, and it isn't really made clear in the text. Uh, it's something you have to infer. Um, and that is Rand's scene where uh, this, this company of uh, people come to share his fire. Okay. And... And there's a, you know, like a, a group of, you know, uh, it's like a merchant woman, an older merchant woman, yeah. and she has ten retainers, and Rand just kills them all. Without provocation, seemingly. W exactly. W without provocation. he He's like, I gotta be careful, I gotta be careful, and then just like, boom, power rot sword, decapitated, kill you all. You know, and... Sushi chef, yeah. And, and the... The thoughts we get in Rand's head in this section are pretty crazy. He mm. seems pretty insane, right? And uh, I think it is supposed to be a an indicator to us as readers the first time through, like, oh, like, wow, like, Rand really is being affected by Sidey. And, and, you know, we talked about this uh, back in the first episode uh, for Dragon Reborn with how expressive these notes of madness are with Rand. But like in this scene... That. Yeah, that's exactly how I would... Yeah. In this scene, yes, he does have some, like... Like, like he... he Pulls the corpses up with 
weaves of air and makes them bow to him with their faces in the dirt. That's, oh, I forgot that's about that. madness, oh. right? That, that is the madness expressing itself. But this was not a random kill. They yeah, no, I didn't at least so so this is confirmed by Robert Jordan. At least the woman was a dark friend. Probably all the retainers were dark friends. And the big indicator for this is the eleventh man who was a gray man. Yeah. There's no, a lot of I didn't think it was even in question that any of them were dark friends. Of course they were all dark friends. Oh yeah, no, th- this is this has long been a point of contention in in the Wheel of Time community. Really? Lots of people are like, "Oh no, this like it was just random chance that a dark friend was with them," because well, there's nothing they to be do. Idiots too, unfortunately. Sorry. Well, well, no, no, no. <laughs> Shots fired from Rob. That's I I I don't think that's a fair thing to say. Like, sure. Okay. Because it is totally without provocation. The only indicator is that there's a dark friend. They don't do anything, or there's a gray man, rather. They don't do anything. The woman, the merchant, doesn't do anything. There's, there are no outward indicators that anybody in that party is a dark friend except for the gray man, who could have been just hanging along with oh, them. he could have been, I unnoticed. I just, you're right, okay. You I, know. Will, I will take so, some of the stingingness of that comment back. I hadn't really considered the logic of the fact that maybe the gray man just tagged along with them and they didn't know he was there. I just yeah. assumed that since the gray man was there, Ren knew some shit was up, he could tell that they were all dark friends somehow due to his madness, and he killed them all. I just, I didn't yeah. think for a second that he was in the wrong. Hmm. So, the, it, it does make sense uh, that they're, they were shadow uh, motivated because every scene, every scene we get from Rand during the middle part of this book is with... Uh, some sort of attack from the shadow. Yeah. So it, it, this fits in the theme. Uh, but the, the actual quote from Robert Jordan was like, by the way, the fact that the dark friend was there is proof that that lady was no lady at all. Okay, see, that's how I took it as a kid. You know. Um, but I have but, to admit that, that is, I, maybe uh, I need to yeah. step back sometimes and take a look at the bigger picture and stop making such a hasty judgment call just because I like a character so much. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, Anything else? Uh, so, uh, the other kind of lore thing, uh, may- maybe this isn't like deep lore, but uh, it has to do with Tom and okay. the fact that he killed Galdrian in the middle yes. of the last book. And this is a question I have to ask you, because the first time reading through this, I did not pick up that Tom killed Galdrian. Really? After Although the way we, you left him in the Great Hunt, you you expected Galdrian's death was a coincidence? I, I never even thought about it. I, I just figured it was part of the Civil War. Oh. Uh, but after after the first time I read through, right, uh, it, it became very clear in this book. You know, there are so many hints dropped. Anytime Galdrian is brought up, Tom is just like, mm, you know, oh, I see. I didn't pick up on those, even though I knew that he killed Galdrian. Go figure. What the fuck? <laughs> Sorry. But uh, the, the, so I'm I'm just curious uh, for listeners. The first time you read the Wheel of Time, when you read the Dragon Reborn, did you pick up on? Did you think Tom was the one who killed Galdrian? That's my kind of lore question. Okay. 
Yeah, and then and then to wrap up this lore segment, I, at least before, because uh, I know there are some questions uh, to be answered. I got, but, a, I got a couple questions from me, and Drew has some questions from the uh, listeners, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the last lore thing that I want to address is um, gateways. Okay. So this is the first time we see an actual gateway made. Not for, at sk- the end. for skimming, though, not for actual traveling, yes? Oh, it's not skimming. It is a gateway to Teleron Riyadh. And this is my point. We see Rand make a gateway and Balsamon make a gateway into Teleron Riyadh. Yeah, okay, yeah. That is their whole battle is through Teleron Riyadh. And then at the very end, it's a gateway back into the real world, into the heart of the stone, where Rand kills... Ishamael. Right? I thought he killed Ishamael in the heart of... Or in, in the world of dreams and then opened a gateway back. No? No, because his body... Oh, yeah, that's right. Balsamon's body yeah. is there, decaying super fast. Okay, yeah. that's right. Yep. Um, but so, there... Again, there are kind of questions that pop up across the fandom about, like, Rand and his knowledge of traveling and skimming, uh, skimming and things like that. And, uh, you know... It, he he doesn't have knowledge. It's instinctual. Exactly. But when he does something, he learns it, right? Mm. And and so he doesn't travel and he doesn't skim at the end of this book. But he makes a gateway. And so he gives himself a foundational knowledge point, so to speak, that helps him at the end of the next book when he makes a skimming gateway and chases Asmodian. And then, again, he has another knowledge point. So, like, gateways obviously are very, very important over the course of the series. And this is the first time we see a gateway of any sort made. And it, it helps kind of guide Rand's learning. Right? Because... So much of what he's doing, as you said, is instinctual. He doesn't really know what or or how he's doing things. He knows why. He knows, like, I need to do this. And then and he just weaves it, right? Mm-hmm. And this, though, with the gateways, uh, the first two gateways he makes, the Teleronriad gateway and the Skimming gateway, are not necessarily instinctual. Both of them he does because one of the Forsaken did it first. And he has this impression, this sense of folding. Oh, well, he can, right? he can like, read the weaves after they dissipate. Uh, dissipate? Ex- dissipate in a sort of way. Well, yes. before they dissipate. You know, so oh, yeah, I... I guess I, uh, before they dissipate, logically speaking, yeah. Um, I, let me... Uh, so, so the quote here is, uh, Baalsman fled, man and shadow vanishing. For a moment, Rand stared, frowning. There had been a sense of folding yes. as Baalzaman left. A twisting, as if Baalzaman had in some way bent what was. Ignoring the men staring at him, ignoring Warain crumpled at the column base, Rand reached out through Kalendor and twisted reality to make a door to somewhere else. Yeah. So the, these are things with gateways, he didn't do it on his own. This wasn't some instinctual thing. 
it was a learned weave because he could read the residue in that moment from another Forsaken. And he does the same thing, which we'll revisit in The Shadow Rising. Hell yes, hell yes. And I want to just mention that that's a very pristine-looking condition copy of the Dragon Reborn that you have right there, Drew. What is that, like your third, fourth, fifth, tenth paperback It is copy? my third. I don't know if it's really pristine, though. It looks I mean, pretty nice compared like, to mine. I'm going to go run to my bed. It's not sitting on my bed. I'm going to show like, mine right now. Creases on the spine Give me 10 and, and seconds. all that. I'm gonna show but... you mine. <laughs> well, while uh, Rob is off grabbing his copy, I'm gonna open a new beer here. Oh, go for it. Check this out. So on this last read, oh damn it, the page. Oh, shit. Sorry, I lost the page. Uh, I, the, the cover came off on my second last read-through. Oh, here's nice. My, here's my copy. And the front, the, the very next page, actually just came off last night as I plugged my phone in over top of that book to, to rest <laughs> it on the book. It was only connected by, like, the, the quarter inch right in the middle. And as I placed the book down on it, I felt it slipping. And then I lost the, the next page, too. So here's oh. my... This is the original copy that I read when I was, like... 12, 13 years old. I'm, I'm still holding it in my hand right here. Still I guy. love it. Uh, so for our listeners, I want you guys to go on the uh, Inking Out Loud Facebook or uh, tweet. Yes! Tweet at the Inking Out Loud handle and I, I want to see your photos of your battered, well-loved uh, Wheel of Time books. I, I want to see that. I'll share a picture of mine too. That, that, that's awesome. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. I'll... I'll share a picture of my current Dragon Reborn copy, but I'll, I'll also share a picture of my uh, Great Hunt copy, which yeah. is uh, something else, let me tell you. <laughs> that is my original <laughs> Great Hunt copy, together, I'll tell you that. It's held together with, like, you know, literally held and wishes. Duct tape. Duct tape. Duct tape. There, there are no covers, there's no Amateur, spine, you it's just gone duct tape. tape. What's wrong with you? Yeah, so... Anyway. But uh, but anyway, uh, lore questions. Uh, Rob, you, okay. you got a couple. So I've got a couple questions. Yes, actually, precisely two. Um, one is about one of Egwene's dreams, and I say that with a capital D, of course. Um, yeah. And this is the dream that she had about Min springing a trap and walking through it as if she didn't know it was there. I'm paraphrasing. Um, yeah. What was that trap that Min just strolled through and didn't notice? So I am not a hundred percent certain on this, okay. but I am pretty certain it is uh, a certain sequence of events in the Shadow Rising. Shadow Rising. Okay, I'm strong. We're thinking at the White about... Tower. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm, okay. Maybe. Maybe. Because she comes out of that like wholly unscathed, and that is a very fraught uh, sequence. So. I'm okay. pretty sure that is what that. the yeah. 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 Um okay. So let's leave that one as perhaps I I, I I tentatively accept that explanation of events. I kind of like that. All right. Um All next right. question, my last question. What the hell is Baalzaman doing to Rand when he reaches for Colindor? And how what the Rand like feels tearing, like his, tearing soul, his soul. Like... Yeah, what it's, I mean, there's no, like, canon is, is there, explanation. Okay. Uh, I just it, it's, to know if there was one. What I figured, it was some true power weave that, you know... It, what I would guess is it's similar to what Magedian did to Bermuda to tear her out of the World of Dreams. Okay. But it's like a... Um, 
in the real world, right? You know, like it would it would separate the body and the soul, and thus give the dark one access immediately oh, to Rand's shit. soul. That's a that's a terrifying thought. If that we've actually existed with a true power, damn. Yeah. Damn. Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, so. we can go to listener questions now because those are that's the end of my questions for this one. All right, let's fire away. Yeah, go for it, my man. Drew has some questions from uh, a couple listeners. Uh, do you have the list there, Rob? No, I asked you if you did right before we started. I think I have that. Oh, on okay. Audio. Yeah, too. yeah. Let, let me. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, let that's me... why I was passing it off to you there because you had mentioned that. Uh, gotcha. I no, that I, I have it uh, right here. I'm just waiting for The one that I posted to, uh, today didn't up. get any traffic, and of course, I found out after the fact that you posted one earlier. I was like, oh, well, we'll just use that one. You've got that up running, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, our, our first uh, listener question from Ian Ledgerwood. He said, why write a book that has no rant? Yeah, that's right. And he said it was my least favorite Robert Jordan book. And, uh, you know, so we we addressed this a bit a in our bit first Dragon Reborn episode. Uh, but mostly it's about um, building tension and manipulating points of view so that we don't have full information as readers. It's a... You know, it it helps ratchet up the uh, stakes. It helps us engage more with Perrin's storyline. Especially because I mentioned earlier how Perrin doesn't really have a whole lot of agency in this book. But he has important character growth. And so Robert Jordan pulls the tension from Rand's plotline and the character growth from Perrin's uh, plotline. And in characters, pers- uh, uh, wow, uh, Perrin's perspective, in, in his character arc, you know, we have this urgency to find Rand, to catch Rand, to, to understand what Rand is doing. And if we had this whole book from Rand's point of view, that tension would not entirely be erased because we would right. still, like, have the, the, the like, kind of, end goal quest line of like what's going to happen when Rand gets to Tyr and tries to get Kalendor but when you're not in Rand's point of view instead the rest of the characters are reacting to things and have to make their own decisions and have to uh, try to figure out how they're going to deal with the way the pattern is weaving and it makes for a much more uh, engaging, in my opinion, engaging and tense book than it would have been had it just been like Rand's point of view all the way through, and then he climbs into the Stone of Tear, and then like Perrin suddenly has a you know um, a sequence in Teleron Riad saving Fael. You know, like it, it, the way Robert Jordan built this book through point of view was masterful and the choice to give Rand so few points of view was a big part of that. Yeah. And I'll I'll take that a little bit farther and I'll say that um we discussed this last episode, we touched on it a little bit in this episode. I'm pretty sure the reason why Randall Thor's viewpoints in this book are so spectacular is because they are few and far in between. Uh to use the analogy I used last episode, they were served up like hors d'oeuvres like they are there there's a whole lot to be gleaned out of them so you just get a few 
and far in between. And this is not the first time that Jordan has kind of used this style to build narrative tension in this series. If you recall, in, in The Great Hunt, uh, Jeffrey Bornhold with the Sean Chan and how he was investigating their arrival on the continent there. I mean, there was a lot of narrative tension built up there because we got so few scenes with the effects of the Sean Chan and there was just so much mystery and that, sh that, sh that shrouded their arrival. So I think he took that and he made it even better. He perfected that with Rand's viewpoints in this book. There's only a few of them, at least until the very end. But because there are so few of them, they are just so much more awesome for it. Um, and of course, how we got that final scene at the end with Rand walking into the heart of the stone in the entire climactic sequence with his battle against Baalzaman, that was just so much more poignant because we had been waiting so long for more of Rand. So, I guess that, that, that would be how I would answer that question if I was, you know, to offer an opinion. Yeah, you know, it's it, it all comes back to the way uh, Robert Jordan manipulated point of view to help build the stakes in his books. Yeah. And just increase this tension going on forward. It, it was masterfully done, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, the uh, the next question is from Brandon Stetter. Oh yeah. And and he asks, where and how did Moiraine learn the wheel for the wee for Balefire? Okay. Uh, so there is no canon answer for this, although it's been asked many times. I thought there was. Sorry. Uh, but the impression given from what answers we have, mostly from, uh, Maria from Team Jordan, Maria Simons, uh, is that Warren learned it while studying, uh, with Adelius and Van Dien in, um... Uh, uh, the Great Hunt, when she was up, you know, studying the Forsaken and and trying to put the pieces together back in, in I think the chapter is called Watchers. Yes, Watchers. It's when Moiraine gets attacked by One the drag car. chapters in that book. It's awesome. Oh, yeah, great, great chapter. And uh, next up here, uh, from Joy Kristen Allen. How's it going, Joy? She asks, "How did Moiraine know that it was Samael and Ilian?" Huh? And this is this is a big point because I I brought this up in the Eye of the World episode where there was a big theory about how Moiraine might have been a dark friend. Um, <laughs> God damn it! I can't. I can't even. And and a big plot point that a lot of the proponents of that brought up was. How Moiraine knew it was Samael and Ilian and Bilal in Tyr. She she didn't just say, oh, there's a Forsaken here. She knew, she said, it's Samael. It's Bilal. And, again, the answer is probably her studies with Adelius and Vandine. We know she was studying the Forsaken while she was there. We know those two have probably the most comprehensive library of knowledge about the Forsaken. Um, the fact that, like, Samael Scar, for instance, is a is a big, like, character-defining trait for him, and 
when she goes off and investigates Lord Brend and she finds out, oh, it's this, like, you know, uh, kind of stocky guy, blonde hair with a scar across his face, and Warren already assumed or or was suspicious that it was a Forsaken. Because of She's the like, dreams. oh, yeah, yeah, this is this is Samael, you know. Um, so that that is almost definitely where she got that knowledge from. I'd also say the people who described the dream would probably describe Samael, because Samael was picturing himself in the heart of the stone, wasn't he? Exactly, and, and yeah. And Bilal, as well. Yeah. Um, and then Joy has uh, another question. Sweet. And she says, why did they let Fail tag along to start with? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one, actually. And to that, I will say, uh, I think we should... What am I saying? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, we should go back to the Eye of the World and how Moiraine reacted to uh, players like Tom and and Loyal and Egwene and Nynaeve. It was mostly this um, inclination Moiraine has that when somebody wanted to attach themselves to their group despite knowing to some extent or another what's going on she says alright you know the wheel weaves as the wheel wills you're part of the pattern you're part of the age lace alright come along but when she does that notice you know that, that chapter uh, a hunter's oath she says, yes, you're part of the pattern, you can come along with us, but I'm going to put safeguards. I'm going to make you swear yeah. on, on the most important oath I know you have that you won't betray us. You know, and, and so uh, Maureen is willing to let the pattern kind of work itself out. She's flexible in that sense. But she's also, uh, you know, she hedges, right? <laughs> she does, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's um, uh, it, like it's a good question. Um, it, it's it's something that's maybe to some listeners or some readers not fully explained or not satisfactorily explained. But it, it is uh, it is valid for sure because Maureen often in these early books she doesn't do things that always make complete sense, and you have to approach them from a a, a hindsight sort of perspective. So, uh, what else do we have left? We have uh, we have our favorite scenes. You want to get into our favorite scenes? Yes. Uh, top three scenes. Who's going first? You want to go first? Uh, sure, sure. I'll go first. I I may be a bit cliche on this. I may as well. So we'll, uh, we yeah. might have the same three scenes. Actually, I, I suspect that we do. Let's let's, let's see what so, you got, dude. So number three is Matt dicing the first toss. Ah, it okay. is it is his uh, time uh, in the inns of Tarvalon. I love this really hectic, Hazy. feverish, 
Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it, sort of the opposite of Robert Jordan's usual writing style. We get no details about the time. He's drunk it, it, on his luck. I love yeah, it so it, it's, much. It's this crazy sequence, and it culminates in a, a like an encounter with the Gray Man, and 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 again a lucky escape for for Matt where he he falls off the bridge he he decides to to tackle the guy right you know and, and they they fall off the bridge and and Matt tries to twist and land on him to to cushion the fall and then he rolls off and realizes oh my gosh the guy like stabbed himself in the heart you know and <laughs> And and that ties back, of course, to uh, the the gray men in the White Tower that uh, Nynaeve and Egwene see and, and encounter there, where when they fail in their missions, they kill themselves. Um, oh, the gray man killed himself. Uh, well, so it, I it's there was another gray man walking around. Well, themselves. Okay. There was the gray oh, man okay. and the gray woman. Okay. Yes. Uh, the the gray woman killed herself on Shiriam's bed gotcha. and killed the crossbowman that uh, Nynaeve caught. Wait, what? The gray woman killed herself on Shiriam's bed? Why? Yeah. As a sign. Remember, it, it was a... Uh, without but really going into as, further as, details... As, as evidence that Shiriam was clearly a dark friend from the beginning in, in previous episodes... How, I guess that's a message to yes. Shiryam, specifically. Yeah, exactly. I thought you were implying that Shiryam had actually murdered this gray man or whatever, for, for whatever reason. No, no, oh, okay. no, 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 no. Okay. And therefore, no, it was, it was very much a, a the signal. she wasn't following yeah. the three oaths. Okay, gotcha. No, well, that she wasn't, not not that she wasn't following the three oaths, that she wasn't uh, satisfactorily uh, carrying out her orders from gotcha. the Dark One. Gotcha, okay, okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, so so that was my first scene. Um, oh yeah, we're still on scenes. <laughs> my second scene, honestly, I'm just gonna be honest. Like, all three of my scenes are Matt scenes. Really? Matt in this is, oh, is so great. I was not expecting uh, that. Okay. Oh really? Yeah. I know you uh, love Matt. I just wasn't expecting all three to be Matt. I thought we would have had this, these next two would have been the same, but it sounds like neither of them are. Yeah, uh, so my my second favorite is chronologically ordered Matt climbing the wall into uh, the palace gardens and and specifically one line because it is oh, I it is just about that one. Damn it. Sorry, it is go just ahead. so good. It is so good. Um with Tom uh not not Tomanis. Um uh, uh, what's his bloody name? Uh, Talonvor. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Let me find the page here. Yeah. Um, uh, Matt. Matt says. Um, okay. Yeah. So so Talonvor finds him. He's like, "How did you come into this garden?" Elber is on the main gates. He's a fool, but he would never let anyone wander loose into the palace. Matt says, "A man with eyes, a fat, a fat man, man with, with eyes, eyes like, like a rat." rat. Yeah. He's, he grew angry when I learned I had come from Tarvalon, and he wouldn't give even give me a chance to show the letter or mention the daughter heir's name. He said he would arrest me if I did not go, so I climbed the wall. And there's a little more. And then Talvor says, that bloody garden wall again. Yeah. 
it yep. should be built three times so high. You can feel the exasperation <laughs> in that poor, broken-down guardsman. Oh, my God. Oh. Like, I'm a huge Talonvar fan, and we'll get to the, you know, into this later in the series. Uh, I, I love that guy. He's, he's one contention. of the most put-upon characters in the whole series. Uh, but, but the, uh, my final scene, my favorite, it's, it's pretty much this entire chapter called A Storm in Tear. And it's when Matt and Tom are going from in to in to in to in to in looking for the Wonder Girls. Looking and Tom is coming down with, like, pneumonia. And Matt is just He's not dogged in his it. pursuit. He's, yeah, And he eventually finds Komar. And he dices with him. With the, the twisted the, dice. Yeah. You know, the... It, it's... <clears throat> the weighted it's dice. It's so great. And I love how that was foreshadowed by ba by Basil Gill, who said Komar had left the tower guard over some matter of weighted dice. Yes. Correct. Awesome. And, uh... And, and then Matt, despite the weighted dice, still, <laughs> like, rolls yeah. the king. You and know, then Komar's and, and eyes then, just pop Komar's out of his like, head. He's like, what?! Yeah, <laughs> oh. and and then Matt like comes over the table at him, and I love like Matt in this book is just brilliant. He's brilliant. I, I love it's like it. reading I love an old it. I love western. It. Just, just I like. Oh, it's yeah. so good. All right, so, cool. I'll get into my. So, what favorites. are your three favorites? So, okay, so my third favorite scene in the book is Matt's healing, and this Ooh. is the only Matt uh, point of view that I have as a favorite scene. But it's Matt's healing. Don't get me wrong. I loved oh. everything about Matt in this book. Um, but there are some scenes that s just stand with me to this day. And my third place one, as I just mentioned, is Matt's healing. The entire sequence with the eyes to die. It's our first glimpse of a saw Angrial, right? And how the, they, all of these eyes to die are just exhausting themselves to try to heal Matt from his connection with this dagger. It's corruption on his soul. The, 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 the way Matt is sort of living in two timelines at the exact same moment, uh, the old yeah. tongue that comes spilling out of his mouth, it, it was awesome. It was, it was chilling down to the bone. It was epic. It was eerie. And uh, it was perfect. I, I loved that scene. It was, it was incredible. And it, it was exactly what we had been waiting for since we discovered he had the dagger. So we had been waiting at that point for almost two entire books. Because it's about halfway through the first book that he yeah. actually got the day. We found out yeah. what was going to happen to him. Um, so that, that was my third favorite. My second favorite would be the uh, one moment that we mentioned earlier in the episode with Craig still on here when we were talking about the Aiel and our first introduction with Avienda. And the way that these Aiel arrive to help the Wonder Girls as they are kidnapped... <laughs> And the way these, these Aiel sort of veil themselves and they surround these three Murdral and they start circling them and they're pounding the rhythm on their bucklers and they're calling, Dance with me, Shadow Man. It was just... It was so, so chilling. Everything you need to know about... Not about the, about the Aiel, but their downright insane courage. Everything about that could be summed up in that moment. I mean... Wow. And then, of course, we get the, the explanation from Ruark afterwards that he was like, honestly, we weren't expecting to kill them all. You know, we weren't even expecting to all make it out alive. But, you know, they were still ready to dance to the death. And just the way you saw the Murdral actually kind of hesitate, the uneasiness in the fades, that was just the most brilliant way to show the deadliness 
and the strangeness of the Aiel. I thought it was awesome. So and this this was actually like an honorable mention. I considered this scene. Yeah, because you had mentioned and this specifically, earlier. Specifically, I thought this was going to be one of your points. Like it was mine. Specifically, um, the writing at the beginning of this scene. It's when they looked through the cracks again to yep. see exactly what they had to deal with. There were three Merdral in the room. That one line is just. Bam! I mean, that yeah. hits so hard. Yep. And then even better, it's when... You, so Egwene, like, channels Earth to unlock, you know, the, the, like, the padlock on the door. And the sequence of events. And it's this one sentence. The chain fell to the floor, the Merdral staring at it snarled, and the outer door swung open. Oh, Black veiled death flowing in from the night. That is Brandon Sanderson level prose in terms of like a heat, isn't it? Like I can, that's Oh, better. I mean, I mean, this is, this is vintage Robert Jordan. Like this, this is, it's, yeah. When people tend to forget how action oriented, how vividly Robert Jordan can describe a scene and can bring you into the action and can make it flow as if you're watching it. And that one sentence, I mean, what is that? Like, like 30 words, one sentence has so much impact. Like how many images are there that flow through your mind reading that sentence? Like it, it, it's, oh, like way to set a spark in a room full of dynamite. Like, it was great. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, seeing you pull out your copy again and read that quote, I just realized I had my copy next to me, and I was going to make a very, very similar point about my last most favorite scene. And what just happened, I don't care if you if you don't believe me. I don't care if anybody listening to this don't believe me. I just picked up the book, flipped to a random spot near the back, and I found my exact line on the second paragraph down on that page. I can't believe I just – it was on, it's on my hard copy – or my hard copy, my paper copy – Page I'm just gonna say, what's up? This is your original copy, right? Yeah. Yeah, you've probably read this so many times that the you book like no naturally idea. just opens. That the, I the can't book has been I open the to right this page. scene. I should at least be no, ten or dude, twenty pages dude, off. I got right Rob, on that page. Rob, Rob, if you've read it this many times, the book has been open to that point oh, that many gotcha, times. Gotcha. It naturally yeah. wants to open. Yeah, there. you know, look, look, look at the <laughs> seam right on the back. It's right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right exactly. Yep. Oh. Anyway, so my very, very favorite <laughs> scene in this book. Indeed, my favorite moment in this entire series. Okay. Bar none. Well, say perhaps like Dumai's Wells or Rand's final moments in the Pit of Doom. Uh, Rand closing his hand on the hilt of Colindor. And I realized, yes, that's our climactic moment in this book. But there was something with that moment of struggle with the immense power that follows and the way that Rand kind of slowly, calmly regains his spiritual balance and he challenges Baalzaman, I was just, oh my god. It, it was just, it, it was, it was, and I say this again and again, it was perfect. It was perfect. And I got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote right here. Um, this is just as he's, you know, kind of coming down from the high with Saidine, and it says, To channel this much of the power, he must dance on that sharpness as if he had danced the forms of the sword. He turned to face Baal Zaman. 
The tearing within him had ceased as soon as his hand touched Kalindor. Only an instant had passed, yet it seemed to have lasted forever. You will not take my soul, he shouted. This time I mean to finish it once and for all. I mean to finish it now. That was actually not the paragraph I thought it was, and I didn't realize that until halfway through. But, just to go two, par two paragraphs back. The way he kind of just sort of calmly regains his balance with that struggle against Saeedine in that moment, that kind of deep breath that he takes as he turns to face Baalzman and make that challenge. Best moment in the series. Like, I, I, I can't think of another moment that I have read more, loved more, and just wanted to see more. Yeah. So, that is my favorite moment, not yeah. only in this book, but in this series. And I'll drop my copy there. Alright. I think that's, uh, that's our cue to head into the final draft then, Sweet. Huh? Yeah, and I'm kind of proud of my final draft. Rob, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. All right, so as I mentioned, I went to the uh, the grocery store. Yeah, a half hour. No, no, no. It was a couple hours before the podcast because I left my beer in there for a while. But I was thinking to myself something about the Dragon Reborn. I wanted to t to tie with our book here, and of course, Drew earlier in this episode with Craig, you were discussing Rand's whole effect on the pattern as a singularity of importance and how he shifts the lives of everyone around him as well as other Taviran. And I brought with me another brew from Collective Arts Brewing Company. Oh yeah. Alright. This here is a citrus blonde. Very, very heavy with a lemon. I noticed that right away more so than other mm -hmm. I mean with citrus you, you expect the grapefruit, you expect orange on occasion. Lemon, lemon, lemon heavy on this one. Very, very okay. nice, though. 4.7% alcohol volume in this. So it's a nice light drink. It's very, very refreshing. I, I loved it. It was kind of like drinking like a, like a alcoholic iced tea in a way. It was delicious. This here is called... And Drew, I'll hold up to the mic there. Oh, it's backwards. It's mirrored. Saint no, of no. Circumstance. Yeah. Oh, all right. I like it. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I saw that one, and I thought, of why not? Of course. <laughs> That's very Rand appropriate. Thank you. Yeah. Now, what are you drinking, dude? So, today I drank a uh, New England IPA from Grimm Brothers Brewing Company in Loveland, Colorado. So, you know, like... Uh, okay, Grimm Brothers. This, this is... Uh, the, the New England IPA style is kind of the new big trend in, you know, over the last couple of years... Uh, for IPAs, more like the hazy, kind of juicy, thick, you know, uh, thick-bodied IPA. Maybe not as, like, hop, piney bomb as you'd expect from, from like, the West Coast IPAs. Sure. Uh, but but it's, it's, a, it's a solid beer. Um, uh, Grimm Brothers is, is one of my favorite breweries around here. Uh, mostly because they do a lot of, like, German styles. And not only, like, German lagers, but, like really obscure German lagers like they do like a like a like an alt beer and like a Kottbusser and like a Dortmunder and like all these <laughs> random like like you probably never even heard of these styles of beers until you buy a six pack and look at the label and you're like huh I wonder what this is you know and but they do great stuff uh but they also do a few you know uh more like American styles and and so this one's a New England IPA and it's called Dragon Bloom. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. I like it, and I appreciate it. Well done. Yeah. Well done. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I've been kind of looking at this one on the shelf every week. I go into my my local bottle shop and, and I'm like, you know, one of these times I'm gonna grab Dragon Bloom and and use it for Wheel Time Book. And I figured, well, the why Dragon why not do it for for the one, the the episode when Rand finally accepts and pronounces himself, and, and we get Aiel like yes. dropping on the on their knees and announcing him the dragon reborn the dragon reborn so so yeah dragon bloom sweet that was that was my uh and it was good yeah it, it, not not the best beer i've ever had but it was a, a tasty you know uh, drinkable beer for a sunday afternoon while recording an episode sweet and uh yeah i think that'll take us into our outro here uh this has been episode 32 Correct. Yes, 32 is today. Whew. And, um, yeah, I mean, we're we're powering through the Wheel of Time. But next week, we will be taking a little break. Small and break. we will actually be going into The Ruin of Kings by Jen Lyon. And this is a, a newer, you know, 2019 release from Tor Books. Uh we we've heard some some really good things about it. We've heard some mixed yeah, yeah. and uh, you know mixed reviews, and we're really excited to dive into it and see how it goes. So we're gonna do two weeks on Ruin of Kings, and then after that we'll dive back into the Shadow Rising. But in the meantime, you know if you uh, if you want to get more Wheel of Time content after this, uh, we have. A short episode on the Strike at Shale Ghoul, which will be available through our Patreon. If you want to support us, all of our Patreon proceeds are going towards supporting our artist and our sound engineer. So please, you know, support them. They're they're doing awesome work. You know, we're we're paying them, but we would like to pay them more than we are. And uh, you know, as as always, we really appreciate your your support, your engagement. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Sup? And we will catch you next time. Thank you, everybody. Peace out. Noise.